Hey, this is Chris Bergson, and welcome to Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by renowned blues guitarist and Berklee guitar faculty, Chris Bergson. In addition to working as a sideman with musicians such as LaVon Helm, Nora Jones, and Al Foster, Chris is an award-winning band leader who's been described by AllMusic Magazine as one of the most inventive songwriters in modern blues music. In 2015, Professor Bergson was inducted into the New York Blues Hall of Fame as a master artist. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Chris Bergson. Hi everyone, I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berkeley College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. We're joined as usual by Assistant Chair Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Coffee cheers, the Berkeley Guitar Department mug. We both have them. <laughs> and uh, our Senior Coordinator, Ian Steed, is here with us as usual. Hey, Ian. Hey, Coffee cheers. Coffee cheers to you. And our special guest today is Professor Chris Berkson. Hey, Chris. Good morning. Cheers. You've got a coffee going, too. Indeed. What are you drinking, Chris? What do you got? I am drinking a double espresso uh, with a little bit of oat milk. Yeah, nice. Kind of, kind of my go-to. Okay. Uh, I live just north of the East Village in Manhattan and near uh, a great uh, espresso place, Ninth Street Espresso. So I, I can get... attest that's great espresso. It is, I, in my opinion, and you, I bet you'll agree, it's the best espresso in New York City, right? I, I was psyched when I became like walking or biking distance from a couple of them. So yeah, no, it's really good. Um, so Chris, it, are you saying that you went out and got coffee already? Did you get that coffee or did you make it? I made it. I, I, uh, I made it at home. Okay, because that's an endeavor to go out already. Yeah. Yeah, and it's rainy and everything. Uh, yeah. No, I usually buy I buy the beans by uh, by the bag, and uh, I have them grind them for me for an espresso maker, and it has a nice sort of chocolatey, chocolatey taste and uh, aroma. Um, yeah, if any of you are find yourselves in in New York City. Let me know. I stop on by. I will. Be, I would be very glad to uh, to make you make you an espresso. That's great. So, Chris, one of the things that a lot of people listening um, are thinking about is first days at Berkeley because a lot of people um, just joined us fairly recently, or they're thinking about coming to campus, or you know they're pretty tired and they're thinking about what inspired them when they first got here. So, you're a new faculty member, relatively. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about what your first impressions were when you got here? Is any stories or anything stick out to you? Um, well, I think it were, it were, ended up working out really well that my that I did the week uh, as part of guitar sessions mm. uh, at Berkeley last August. That that worked really well as sort of my introduction to 
to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, do you mean like that first day or the first well, day of that? Chris, didn't you, you, had, you told me a story. Did you ever go to the guitar sessions when you were a kid growing up in Boston or you went to the BPC? You told me some stories about that, but. Yeah, I, I mean, sort of, so my, I guess my introduction to teaching at Berkeley was really that week in August as part of guitar sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a lot of memories of, of going to concerts at the BPC. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad took me to hear Dizzy Gillespie uh, at the BPC when I was a kid. Uh, I think it was in 1987. I was in fifth grade and Dizzy Gillespie gave a concert at the BPC and my dad took me and it was, it was, it was one of the most incredible concerts I've ever been to. I mean, to this day, and I, I still have vivid memories of it. It was just an amazing show. Um, it, the band also included John Faddis, James Moody. Um, and I'm told by some of my trumpet player friends that at that point in 1987, Dizzy was still very much in his prime, chops-wise, playing-wise. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that concert uh, very well because I, I was already playing guitar at that point and just starting to get into uh, playing jazz on the guitar. And I was studying with um, a, a Berkeley student. I, I as, as I think, yeah, you both... You all know, I I grew up in the Boston area um, in Somerville and all of my guitar teachers, I had like four different guitar teachers growing up uh, and all of them were were Berkeley grads. Um, One one of them actually, though I don't, (laughs) I don't think he remembers me and that's okay. Uh, One of them was actually Craig Gladdy, who is obviously still on faculty now. Um, Yeah. a professor here, Craig Halati. Wow, that's uh, really cool. Great teacher. Uh, I only studied with him briefly, um, but I thought of him recent, uh, more recently when when Pat Martino passed, uh, because Craig, I was a sophomore in high school when I studied with Craig. He was also teaching at a great place, which unfortunately is no longer around, called the Cambridge Music Center. Um, and actually, Joe Stump taught there at that time. Uh, it was right near Porter Square in Cambridge. It was a great, uh, a great music store run by these two music lovers, one of whom I'm still in touch with, thankfully, due to Facebook. Uh, but upstairs, they had lesson rooms. So Craig taught there, and uh, Joe Stump taught there. Um, and Craig made me this tape, bought back before, you know, Spotify and all that. He made me an honest-to-goodness, like, mixtape. Um, and it included some absolutely incredible Pat Martino, uh, which ended up being my introduction to, to Pat Martino's playing. He made a mix. It had Pat Martino playing uh, Lazy Bird, Impressions, uh, the ballad, What Are You Doing the Rest of Your Life? And then some really choice George Benson too, like uh, Billy's Bounce, Low Down and Dirty, great slow blues. And I think some Kenny Burrell as well. So I think I, I wore this cassette out. Awesome. Um, so anyway, it's funny. I, I, I saw Craig that first day, uh, which mm-hmm. included me playing at the BPC as part of your opening concert. Right. Uh, I kind of got the chills being on stage. Like, 
because I, I hadn't been back to uh, the BPC in a long time. Um, in addition to hearing Tuck and Patty there, I also remember, I'm sorry, in addition to hearing Dizzy Gillespie there, uh, I also heard Tuck and Patty there and also uh, John, John McLaughlin. Wow. We got Gertu, uh, which actually my friends at the Cambridge Music Center uh, presented. Those concerts were a little later when I was in high school. So it had a lot of, uh, there were a lot of memories for me and I hadn't been back to uh, go to any shows since I was in high school. So that was kind of my introduction to, to Berkeley. It was actually meeting uh, uh, Jeff Lockhart uh, backstage at the BPC uh, <laughs> for our little duo set. And, uh, you know, us running through very quickly a couple of the tunes we were gonna play. We played a meters tune, I remember, and uh, a really kind of nasty uh, John Lee Hooker blues uh, that Jeff uh, wanted to do, which was really fun. Um, and then when I looked up, it was it was really amazing playing with Jeff. I mean, he's become he's become one of my favorite guitar players and someone that I, I get a, a tremendous amount of inspiration from uh, every time I, I hear him play. I'm always sort of I'm trying to, you know, I'm stealing. I'm stealing stuff. <laughs> Uh, and then I looked up, and and when we finished our our blues, uh, I looked up and there was Mike Stern standing in the wings, kind of mm -hmm. arms crossed, but but like grinning ear to ear and kind of nodding and like I was like okay okay. And then I I met him and I was like, all right, well so that that was really my introduction to Berkeley. I thought, <laughs> all right, this I think I feel like we're off to a good start. <laughs> You know, I love every part of that story because the, the great thing about first day conversations is there's so many more first days than meet the eye. Like you had a number of first days at Berkeley, <laughs> you know, before, even though people think, oh, well, you just started here, but you didn't. And, and I think it's hard for people to see when you're at the beginning and sometimes when you're at the end, how important all these different firsts are. Like all these people that you met and you knew of that were teachers when you were a kid are now your colleagues. Like they teach literally across the hall from you. That's and, right. And so, and I think it would be so moving for them to know that you had that mixtape. Like you remembered what's on the tape that your teacher made for you when you were 14. I remember all that stuff too, you know? And um, what you were saying about like even seeing Tuck and Patty, um, I got to bring them to guitar sessions at one time, but I fell in love with them when my high school teacher took me to see them in Lenox, Mass. And I met them and they were so nice and they were so inspired and they were just so nice to me that I bought all their records. And then later, <laughs> like, hey, you know who would be great for students? Those people. Like, you know, it's like it's a small world literally built on relationships like that, but not always the ones you can see. Right. You know, and like somebody being a great musician and also being really good to you makes a huge difference in your whole life. I think that, that's, that's so cool. Point. And then the way that you're acting with your colleagues when now you're the well-known person is kind of the same way that you're acting with them when you're a kid. Like, hey, look, Mike Stern is here, or I'm having so much fun playing with Jeff Lockhart. And other people will be like, oh my God, it's Mike Stern, it's Jeff Lockhart, it's Chris Bergson. But you guys are like, Hey, you want to check this out? Or that's really cool what you did. Or I'm going to steal that from you. You know, like, I think it's 
good for people to see that this is this is sort of the down to earth thing. It's not like networking. It's building on relationships and trying to be good to people as you get better and better at what you're doing. I love how you put that. I hate the term networking. It's just, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it should come naturally from connecting with people that, that where you really share right. musical values, I think. And it's, it's best when it happens naturally anyway. Yeah. I mean, so I'm really interested. I wonder if you would talk about your playing a little bit because, um, first of all, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard Chris play, we'll send some things out and you should check it out. Um, but Chris, you have this really honest, very deep way of playing blues. And obviously you've been doing it for a long time and you sing and you play. And I think like the music that you choose, there's so much life experience that gets shared through the the way that you have to express yourself through that music for it to sound authentic in the way that you do it. How did you start to learn that in your life when you were young, as you were like compiling life experience? Like, how did you, how did you find, you know, the way that you have to make the music you play sound really authentic? Like, what did you do to, to get good at that? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, number one, that's a tricky question to answer. Um, I mean, number one, obviously listening tons and tons to, to, to the masters and trying to soak up as much as you can. Um, there's that obviously. And, and, and then some of the people that I was either able to see live or uh, people, my cat's about to knock over the iPad. Um, we'll see if Winston or Apollo make uh, any cameos today. <laughs> my two cats. Um, yeah, we have to interrupt for one second. Do you have cats named Winston and Apollo? <laughs> That's really cool. I do. Winston, you want to say hello? Winston really <laughs> loves music. When I'm when I'm practicing, he often will will curl up. Uh, at my feet and it, he is he's very sweet um, okay and, sorry to interrupt you go no, ahead no no so some of it obviously comes from you know what you're able to soak up from listening tons to recordings and um going to hear people live is so important um i feel lucky my parents took me to hear so many great artists when i was growing up um especially jazz and blues artists uh, that would come through Boston. And that had a huge influence that I was already playing guitar and playing music and in bands, but then going to hear amazing, amazing players live. Um, and I feel really fortunate because by the time a lot of my friends got into, you know, people like Miles Davis or Joe Pass or whoever, uh, a lot, some of those greats had passed on, unfortunately. So that that's part of it. Um, I was I was really moved by one of the quotes um, that Cheryl shared as part of your amazing tribute to Mick Goodrick, which was just an amazing uh, amazing tribute. By the way, congratulations to to you both. Um, I watched it 
later uh, from my hotel room one night after our show in Europe. Um, amazing performances and the tributes and you guys just did an amazing job kind of putting the whole thing together with uh, the slides of some of Mick's paintings. And one of the quotes that Cheryl shared, because uh, I think that book, The Advancing Guitarist, is just as valuable sort of for some of Mick's philosophy that he shares uh, in there, um, as well as the more specific musical information. But one of the quotes that Cheryl shared also really resonated with me uh, as well. And I think that relates to what you were asking. And that's the thing about if you can learn to play from your pain. Um, and I, 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 I purchased this book when I was in high school, probably from the Berkeley College of Music bookstore. And I thought I understood what that meant when I was in high school. But as time has gone on and you, you know, you live, right? And you do have different experiences, um, positive and negative, both playing music with different people and in your own life. Uh, and that quote, it just continues to resonate with me uh, all the time. And I, and I, I, I think it's really, really relevant um, that, that if you can draw from your own pain, your own emotional experience, when you play music, it will, I think, deepen the emotion that you're expressing through your music. Um, and it will also, it's the part of music where it can really be incredibly cathartic and sort of soul satisfying and, and healing. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's a, a, a piece of it without going into any like specific, you know, personal, you know, drama or struggles, but, um, you know, obviously with the pandemic and, you know, some positive things that have come from that, I think, for, for many people, but also coming out of, for all of us, coming out of this very difficult and challenging time. Um, I ended up writing a bunch of new songs uh, that were inspired by the pandemic. So that's sort of another example. And I talk about this, I've been really enjoying doing a songwriting lab this semester. And I talk about that with my songwriting students. Their first assignment was to write a song that really clearly communicates a sense of place and to write from what you know. I know that's almost a cliche, but I think it's really important when you're writing. Start with what you either know, what you've personally experienced, or at least what you've personally observed that that usually is gonna be your strongest, most honest, most sincere, most emotional offering. So I think that also relates to trying to play um, from, from that emotional place. Um, there isn't an easy way to teach someone how to do that. You have to practice doing it, but I, you know, sometimes I'll I, I feel that with some of my students. It's like you just played a nice solo, you know, on a on a slow blues. But can you 
can you go further? Can you dig deeper? You know, you didn't really break a sweat. Like I want, I want to really feel every note you, you play. I want you to, I mean, anyone who's ever, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but you know, anyone who's ever seen me play live, uh, they know that usually after a couple of songs, I, I, I'm drenched. <laughs> and this tends to happen more when I'm playing and singing. Sometimes when I'm just playing, it doesn't happen. I don't want anyone to think I'm phoning it in either. But no, that's the problem of having this very tangible outward thing is that if I ever do a show and, and don't, you know, don't soak my shirt, people will be oh man, I heard Bergson on tour at first set. He wore the same shirt first and second set. He was phoning it in. But that's sort of obviously like a very tangible kind of outward example. But I mean, I think about my heroes, whether it's Muddy Waters or some of my jazz heroes or Freddie King or Aretha. Uh, I don't know if you saw that amazing, uh, the amazing, amazing Grace uh, concert film. I mean, that would some of the most incredible, moving, emotionally powerful singing I've ever heard. Or I mean, I cried watching it. I was drained after just watching Otis Redding, Ray Charles. I mean, these are people where it's like, they left it all on the stage or leave on helm who I was fortunate to work with. I mean, it's just that sense of they were not holding back. It, it was not like a glib performance where they didn't break a sweat. It's like they gave, you know, 300% and they just left it all on stage. They're, they're, they're really, really, really giving it up for you uh, to make you as an audience member, hopefully, feel something so those are i realize i'm sorry that's sort of a long-winded mm. answer but those are those are some of the things i i sort of think about yeah i think those are great things and just to underscore them i think that we're hearing from a lot of people that they're feeling disconnected you know either because of the pandemic or in a lot of ways just because of the way we consume information like you used to have to really work to find the stuff. You know, I have to go find the players and see if I can get someone to let me into these shows if I'm not old enough. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or ask someone for a lesson. Or remember calling people on the phone that you didn't know to ask for help. It was like, and like you're planning it out and then you get the number and then, the, you know, and you can't, there's no call ID. So they're going to answer. They're not going to know who you are. And, and then you, you say something stupid and you feel stupid. And then, you know, it was like a whole thing. And then getting a book or getting a record or getting a tape or like, it was like all these tapes that we shared and passed around and it was, you had to work for it. So the whole process was more intense. And we're hearing more and more that people feel disconnected from the two things you mentioned, from the history of what they're doing, like the authenticities of the style and who the players are and the history of the music and what goes into it culturally. And then also, um, you know, it's everything you're saying about putting yourself into it, and accessing who you are as a person and your life experience and and what you've gone through and channeling that in a way that, you know, doesn't break your, your privacy, but like shares the feelings. I think people are afraid to do that. Like it's really hard to sit in a room by yourself and access those parts of you. And so I think it's important that you're saying like these two things are essentials 
when you're learning. You have to know where the music comes from and what makes it what it is as a thing, as, as music that doesn't belong to you. And then you have to know who you are to put yourself into it so you can come through it as well. Um, I think you're right that you can't teach someone to do it, but you're, you're obviously finding ways to facilitate that process for other people and to support them and encourage them and sort of push them into that process. You know, that's a, that's a heavy task. Does it feel that way when you're teaching? Does it feel like a bit of a heavy task or how do you think about it when you're teaching? Um, sometimes, I mean, I was thinking about that recently now that, you know, we're getting near the end of the semester um, and thinking about some of the different pieces my students are gonna be performing for their proficiencies, sort of thinking about like, okay, you've picked this piece, whether it's a West Montgomery solo or a Julian Lodge piece, um, I'm thinking about some of the things my students will be playing or a John Mayer, John Mayer tune. So it's, yeah, it's sort of asking my students, okay, you know, you picked this piece, you, you felt passionately about really wanting to learn and get inside this piece. What are, what's sort of, let's sort of zoom out a little bit. Like what are, what's sort of the larger takeaway here? Like what made you want to learn this piece? Or like, I asked one of my students the other day, like, you know, how could you, okay, let's say you're doing a gig of your own. And either you play this particular piece or what from this piece would you take and try and make part of your style? The sort of larger, the larger perspective mm -hmm. of what made you want to learn this piece and how can you kind of be inspired by it? You're obviously probably not going to perform this piece or this solo note for note on your own gig. Right. But, you know, we were looking at Wes Montgomery's uh, amazing solo on the live version with the Wynn Kelly trio uh, on four on six yesterday. So it's like, okay, you know, are you going to take this phrase or that phrase and look at how it lines up with the chord? You know, what, what, what are you sort of getting them to be a little bit more proactive mm. than learning the solo note for note and getting it down, playing it in time with the right phrasing and feel that's really, that's not the end point. That's just like, okay, good. But now what are you going to do with it? What phrases are you now going to practice in all different keys? Or do you see how you could use that phrase over this chord, but also over that chord to sort of larger, larger um, picture? Because sometimes I think young players, and it's understandable, there's so much information that, that you want to learn and need to learn, but then thinking also like, what do I do with that? Because just learning one West Montgomery phrase over a G minor seven chord, okay. <laughs> right. What are you gonna do with it? And that's where I feel like part of my job, that's part of my job as a teacher is to help them learn it, but then also push them a little bit. Maybe right. some of them hadn't really, uh, some of them maybe hadn't even thought about that. They're so busy just working on getting it down. They maybe hadn't even thought about like what they might do with it once they really had learned it. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think on the flip side, there's a disconnect with the materials too. So we have the fundamental materials and at Berkeley, we organize them into the proficiencies or the final exam materials, like your modes and your intervals and your triads and seventh chords and arpeggios. And so many people feel like, 
well, I mean, this is getting in my way or now it's making everything too technical or now I can't express myself. But how do you get them? How do you get people to see that this is the vocabulary? Like all of this stuff is the vocabulary so that you can do what you're saying. Like now it's not just a phrase that Wes Montgomery played one time that you learned, but it's also this scale or arpeggio or a mixture of those things that can work with a G minor seven chord. So later you could play it on a different G minor seven chord and do your own thing with it. And, you know, like, how do you help them? It's like a lot of pieces to connect for people who do feel disconnected and overwhelmed. Yeah. How do you connect the, the nuts and bolts part? <laughs> like the really the fundamental vocabulary and, and, you know, and also technique and tone production and those things like, how do you do that for people? That I, that's, that's definitely one of the challenges. Um, one of the things that uh, some of my students said they found helpful, which I did last semester, and then I got a request to sort of repeat it this semester. Last semester, I, I made uh, a sheet uh, with what I, what I consider good fingerings for the modes of C major, good logical fingerings without a lot of shifting. Um, and I did it. With fingerings, the, the the names of each, the names of the notes for each mode, the numbers. Uh, I'm trying to encourage my students to think of each mode in terms of numbers, as well as the notes or def, or the patterns. Um, and then also in like the to the right on the right side, I put related chords and then uh, examples from recordings. Uh, with tunes uh, that really use those chords or those sounds. And then I would try and uh, bring in tunes like, so what, you know, if when you're working on Dorian or all the things you are is a great tune for level one, because it uses a lot of the level one proficiency chords. Just trying to think of um, songs that actually use those chords or modes. I mean, the thing that I found is that it's a little more challenging for students uh, that are coming from more of a, uh, a blues and rock background where they just aren't used to some of this harmony. They, they you know, the sound of a major seven sharp 11 or major seven augmented chord, you know, they, they haven't heard that that they, they, you know, you are going to find that on like a Muddy Waters record. You're just not. <laughs> so I feel that a teeny bit, you know, from some students, they say, well, you know, do I really need to know this? I mean, I mean, I, I don't feel like I, on one hand, I wish some of my students would be a little more independent and do a little bit more thorough work on the proficiency materials on their own. Some, not all, some are incredibly driven and self-motivated. Um, for many, I've, you know, I really have to go through it with them slowly, make sure that, you know, some need a teeny bit more handholding than others. But I feel like that's one of the challenges for students that where a lot of the harmony are actually contain new sounds for them. But what I try to tell, what I try to tell them, at least from my own experience, and I'm, and I'm curious uh, for all of you in your experience too, one thing I try to tell them is that you don't really know, you don't always know what gigs you're gonna get called to do in your career. Now you could say, hey, I'm a blues rock player 
And my goal is I want to form a trio uh, modeled after like, you know, the John Mayer trio. Obviously, he's very popular these days. Uh, you know, and I want to play kind of funky, bluesy pop tunes and sing and play guitar and do that kind of thing. And John Mayer's been successful doing that. And I, maybe I could be successful doing that. You know, am I really going to need to use, you know, uh, D Dorian flat two on a gig? And, you know, and I think the fair and honest answer is you don't know. And I've certainly been called for gigs that were, that came as a surprise. Um, and you could even say, well, was I the exact right fit for that gig or was I just filling in for someone? You know, that happens plenty. I tell my students that too. They say, well, you know, do I really need to sight read? Wouldn't I always get the music in advance? Do you ever really need to sight read on a gig? I mean, really? And I say, well, yes, yeah, sometimes. But the thing is, I mean, if your reading skills aren't happening to the point where you could actually go through a piece slowly and read it accurately at your leisure at home, how do you think you're going to be able to, you know, have a good handle on music that you're sent when you get a call on short notice? Because, hey, can you do this gig? It's two days from now. Our guitar player is really sick or, you know, our guitar player is stuck in wherever. Uh, their flight was canceled. I have 20 tunes to send you. Here's, here's the music. Whereas if you actually have good reading skills, you could be like, cool. I might need to use music on the gig. Maybe I won't be able to memorize 20 tunes in two days, but I'm a good reader and I know how to, I know, I have a, I know how I'm going to approach sort of a quiff note approach of how I'm going to be able to show up and do a good job on this gig. But if you haven't taken the time to actually get those skills together where you can read even like slowly, but accurately, I, then, then, you're, you might as well, then you might as well tell people you don't read at all. And good luck learning 20 hard original jazz tunes by ear on two days notice. Well, you know, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. What's that phrase your teacher would say, luck? Luck favors the prepared. Yeah, luck favors the prepared. I mean, we all, I wish, you know, I have many wishes and things that I wish would happen. And every day I'd have espresso delivered to me and all that but you know i got to be prepared <laughs> for those things like that and really your career is a lot of those things right you don't know what's going to happen i mean i would say that like you know you can guarantee that you won't have to use something on a gig if you can't do it you know what I mean? Like, cause no one's yeah. going to call you. And then like, if I call you and, and you do the gig that's right down the middle, then the next gig I have, I might ask you if you can do other things, right? I'm not going to go look for the one guy who only does one thing. If I have someone or the one woman who does one thing, I might go for the person who can do multiple things. Who's also cool and shows up and cause I want them to have depth. And I think the real myth, this has come up over and over again this semester, just because you hear someone on a record and you hear them doing one thing, it does not mean that is the only thing they can do. It is much more likely that they can do a thousand other things, <laughs> and the way I know that is the way they play that one thing. 
Mm-hmm. I've so had it with people saying to me, oh, yeah, it's a three-chord tune. You only need to learn three chords. I'm like, no, 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 no. Listen to the way that part is played. It's masterful. That person can play circles around anybody, and they were asked to do this, and they did it beautifully. And then I'm going to bet you that most of those people who are doing that beautifully on that record are doing other things in other ways in other projects. And they're the person you call because you know they're going to be great. And, and also, you decided to go to music school if you're at Berkeley, right? So why not take advantage of learning things? And, and what if you never play that crazy chord, but because you've heard it, you might use a part of it or a tension note from it to make your dominant chord sound like extra beautiful or add some color here because there's another guitar player who's playing you know, a minor seven flat five. So what other tensions could you put in the second guitar part that make the whole thing sparkle? You know, like, when, why not? Why, why say no to a tool? I think that absolutely. And, and I, I'm shocked by that, you know, the cut, you know, when I occasionally do run into that kind of resistance, like, why are you at age, whatever, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, mm-hmm. why are you limiting yourself? Why, why are you, why are you at this time where this is a perfect time to like, okay, uh, you know, I, you know, okay. You're not a great reader right at this moment. That's okay. Like, that's okay. But like, especially reading, which is such a, you only get better at it by, by doing it. You, you can't get better at it by reading philosophical books about doing it. You have to just pick music you've never seen before and put on, uh, the metronome. That's what I did. I was studying with Jack Wilkins. I went to Manhattan School of Music, and I said, "Jack, I really want to. I really want to become a better reader." I got tired of being the guitar player that, you know, turned down when <laughs> when the music was given, and it was starting to bum me out. I mean, that's the other thing. And I've talked about this with some of my students. I mean, it can ultimately be bad for your self esteem as a musician if you walk around. Like, oh, I'm not a very good reader. I'm never going to be a good reader. Then, like, because that's kind of what happened to me that was sort of the final straw for me. I remember being in music school and, like, you know, being in, in an ensemble and they handed out, like, a chart and they wanted me to play the melody. And, like, I, I didn't feel like I was doing a good job of, of reading the melody. And then it was time for me to solo on the tune. And I was so bummed out, like, so kind of frustrated with myself. That then when it came time for me to solo something that I felt more confident in my own abilities than in my reading, I, I, I was kind of deflated and, and didn't approach that solo from a, a very like strong place. So, so you know, it, it can kind of bring you down in other areas. It's just sort of bad for your self-esteem, but it's like you're wasting all this time feeling bad about this thing that like you're saying like you're a bad reader, like that's set in stone. I mean, you obviously, you just, you just need to work on it. Because I really think anyone could really become a good reader. I mean, most people just, they just, they, they just say, I'm not a good reader. Like, like, that's set for life as opposed to like, I mean, I said that to my, some of my students. Like, why don't you just work on reading like half an hour a day, 20 minutes a day for like a month and see where you're at. I guarantee you that you're going to be that much better. I mean, when I said, when I told Jack Wilkins I wanted to become a better reader, I said, Jack, what should I do? Because he's a really great reader. Um, 
He said, well, all right, it's simple. You just need to get some different music, get some via classical music, get some violin books, get some flute books, get some Bach. Uh, and you just need to put on the metronome and read for an hour a day music you've never seen or heard before. And I did that. And it really, it really helped. So Chris, and of course, you, and, and reading got more fun. Also. Are you saying the magic formula is to work on it every day? <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Secrets being revealed. This coffee talk may break the internet, but yes. <laughs> oh my God, that's the secret. That is the special secret. I mean, I knew Cheryl. Cheryl, I know you have a lot more to say, so I'm just gonna. You have the floor, Cheryl. Professor Bailey, take take us. There it is, right? No, there it is. But what? Okay, so (laughs) Chris and I met through the great Jim Hall, (laughs) who we both had a connection to and met in New York, and he said hey, you guys should meet each other. And we got together and played. But I'm always, so you know what I'm going to ask you, because I'm always fascinated by this. I don't, actually. No, well, because I ask you about all the time. Because you were a kid, a teenager, and you had the opportunity to study with Jim Hall. You took some, which is kind of rare, because he he wasn't really into being an educator per se, even though he was so deep and we all learned much from him, but you know, in a real traditional sense, and you were able to score these lessons with him. And oh, in you know, you always say he showed you some things that he played with Bill Evans. But anyway, I, just whatever you want to share about that experience of having that opportunity at a young sure. age to, to, to come across that guy, that amazing guy. And you know, yeah, what was that? like? Sure. Um, yeah, I took a handful of lessons with him, most of them when I was about 18, 19, and then one more when I was maybe 22 after I'd been playing a bunch. And I feel like I probably remember almost every word of those lessons. Um, so it was a slightly unusual situation because although he was, I believe, teaching at the new school at the time, um, it was, he wasn't maybe, I think you're, yeah, you're right. He wasn't teaching a ton privately. So it actually ended up being through my uncle, funnily enough, who was um, an, uh, an, an analyst who worked with Jim, Jim's wife, Jane. They were part of the same uh, New York-based uh, group of psychoanalysts. Um, and so... I don't even know how it came up, but my one time my uncle said, you know, the the someone I work with who's actually, I think may have even been his boss, you know, is married to um someone who I think may be a, a famous jazz guitarist. I think his name is John Hall. And so I don't I don't know any John Hall, but I mean there is there is a Jim Hall. And he said, Well, well let me um let me, let me check on that or whatever. So then it was like, it came back. No, 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 it's it's Jim Hall. And I, I was already a, a huge fan. Uh, and I ended up hearing him play a number of times, uh, including duo with Ron Carter uh, at the Regatta Bar. Um, so when I was a senior in high school, I ended up basically, so, so through my uncle, 
uh, and Jim Hall's wife, uh, Jane, I ended up basically getting an audition with, with Jim where I would come down to New York City. I think it might have been a weekend where I was already visiting colleges or something. It was my senior year of high school. Uh, so we, I went down to New York and I went to Jim's apartment. Uh, he lived right near uh, where the new school is in Manhattan. And it was basically like, you're going to have this meeting with Jim and he's either going to agree to teach you or because he really doesn't teach a ton, he may recommend someone else for you to study with. And my, my scene at the time is that I was going to be going to Vassar College in Poughkeepsie uh, in the fall, starting my uh, freshman year. So the plan was that I would either, you know, I, I could take Metro North, take the train down from Vassar to study with Jim Hall or maybe whoever else he recommended. So I, I, I remember this. So I, 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 get, I go to his apartment and he was super, super, I'm sure I was very nervous, but he was super friendly. He was just such a nice, sweet guy that, that really put me at ease. I mean, he was just such a sweet sort of gentle soul. Uh, and I remember uh, we played the Days of Wine and Roses, uh, which was one of a, a handful of tunes that I, I guess I felt, you know, comfortable with at that time. Um, and I had just seen him play with Ron Carter just a few months before. And I was really blown away that when we played together, I remember um, Jim closed his eyes and I just couldn't believe that here I was. He could have been like, all right, all right, kid, you know, let's see what you got. But instead it was like, all right, we're gonna play this tune duo, cool. And we played and he closed his eyes and it was the same guitarist I had watched play duo with Ron Carter just a couple months before. The same level of concentration and really, really deep listening. And he was such an incredible accompanist as well as being an incredible improviser. And he closed his eyes and did that classic gym thing where he rolled his volume down, basically getting that really beautiful acoustic guitar tone from his, from his arch top. Uh, and it was just an amazing feeling playing with him. I definitely felt transported in a way I've felt since playing with other amazing musicians. But he closed his eyes and, and, and then afterwards he said, well, you know, he said something nice about my playing, which I really appreciated. And he said, well, you know, I've never heard anyone play uh, D flat major seven as a substitute for uh, B flat minor on that tune before. And I was just sort of like, I, I remember I left his apartment just like on cloud nine, like Jim Hall liked one of my substitutions. It was probably like one of the only substitutions I knew. Uh, and I was like, oh my God. And just to meet him and hang out with him. Um, so he ended up saying, I remember, I remember to this day, you know, he had this great Midwestern accent. He's like, well, Chris, you know, it's a long way from Poughkeepsie, but if you want to take the train down, you know, my door is open. 
And I was like, okay, I, I, I do. Um, and then I remember another time I just started probably once I was already at Vassar and I was starting to think more about maybe moving to New York city. And I remember I was just bombarding Jim with questions, like an excited, you know, 18 year old would like, you know, you know, what about getting gigs in New York and what's the New York jazz scene? I had just been to Smalls, which just opened recently. This was in 1994. Uh, and there was like a real resurgence of interest in straight ahead jazz at that time in New York. So I was just bombarding him with questions. <laughs> and he said, well, Chris, you know, to be honest with you, at this point in my career, I actually only play in New York City uh, a couple times a year, you know, when I play at the Vanguard. So I can't even really answer these questions of, you know, gigs and all this stuff. He said, but why don't I connect you with a really good young guitar player who knows the scene? And next thing I know, he gets Peter Bernstein on the phone. So I'm at Jim's apartment and he said, well, let me, let me call this, this, this young guitar player. This guy was a student of mine and he, and he plays great. And, I, and I'd actually already heard Peter Bernstein on record. So I was just like, oh, well, okay. So then Jim gets Peter Bernstein on the phone and, and sure enough, Peter Bernstein has a gig that night. And so I go down to the cupping room cafe in Soho and Peter Bernstein's playing trio with Grant Stewart on saxophone and Omer Abital on bass just playing tunes in the corner of this restaurant. And, uh, and then, so I ended up meeting Peter Bernstein. He became a, a good friend and, uh, and uh, a mentor as well. I see he's coming to Berkeley on, uh, on Monday, which is awesome. I happen to have a break the first half of his masterclass. So I'm, I'm excited for that, but, you know, so through Jim, I met him and Jim uh, shared a lot of wisdom. Um, I still remember some of the things he said about time because I, I asked him, you know, I was trying to work on deepening and improving my time. I said, you know, how did you work on, you have such incredible time. Uh, you play such great rhythm guitar. You know, how did you develop that? And he talked about how, how much he was influenced and modeled his own playing after Freddie Green's playing. Um, and he talks about that in his book. But then he said something that really uh, stuck with me. He said, the way I see time, I never, ever worry about it, ever. I see time as like a constant pulse, a constant river that you just tune into and you create the time with the people that you're playing with in that moment. And I think that I found that to be very true. And I think he was obviously talking coming from a jazz perspective, but I think that's true regardless of what music or what genre you play. And that's something I think about a ton, whether I'm playing trio with bass and drums, duo with another guitar player, a uh, duo with a bass player, accompanying a singer, just me, that you want to just agree, be really, you know, ears wide open, listening, and that you create that time together. And he, you know, obviously Jim is famous for this very conversational approach to playing and improvising you hear it on those amazing duo records he made with bill evans um, well that you know that i mean coming from him though he he was so famous for duets i mean even with yeah. wayne shorter and and red mitchell and Ron, oh yeah that, because i always thought the that was a testament to his time that you didn't need a bass player and drummer if you have jim hall to play yeah. with 
So it, that's really interesting, his thoughts about the time, how he's listening and feeling the time all the time, all the time. <laughs> he's yeah. on time all the time. He's always there with the time. <laughs> yep. I, I mean, the only thing I would add is like, I'm thinking about, I was sharing this with a student recently, and the only thing I would add is that someone at Jim Hall's level, he's probably also, at, you know, for the, for the past, you know, 40, 50 years, he probably had also only played with people that also had incredible time, <laughs> too. I mean, he probably wasn't often in situations where it's like, why, you know, quit dragging, Ron. You know, like, that's not, right? I mean, he is in a place where, you know, he's playing amongst equals. But still, I mean, I don't think it's too early to have that trust, as long as you're playing with people that have a good groove and a good time feel. But, the, but that that's a very musical way to play with others as opposed to, here it is, you got to come to me. I'm not budging a bit. I hear where you are, but I'm right. I mean, just that we all have to have that give and take, I think, when we play play with people. I mean, that's just how you, I think that's just how you, you play well with others, right? Ian, what about you? What's on... Uh... What's on your mind? Uh, maybe this is a good time to throw your question in the mix here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that bit about the time. And yeah, it probably uh, shouldn't take for granted the level of musicians, you know, <laughs> that are around you in there. Um, but yeah, so there's a question that um, we ask everybody on this podcast. Um, that is, what is something that students should be thinking about? that they might not be thinking about or like something that might not be on their radar, like a question that they should be asking that they might not think to ask? That's a good question. I mean, I, I, I mean, one, it's sort of obvious, but yet, as I kind of said before, I think, I mean, one is obviously like, like what, what do you want to do in an ideal world with, with, as a musician? Like you do, I think it is important to have like a clear sense of, and, and obviously that can change. Uh, but, but what do you want to do? You know, you're, 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 you're developing your skills. You're amassing this body of information. Well, what do you ultimately want to do? Like if someone gave you, you know, if someone said, I will grant you one wish and you can have the, gig of your dreams, what would it be? Because some students I feel like actually aren't thinking about that. They're learning a tune for their proficiency, but maybe they're not really thinking about like what sort of, what is the application of that? Um, I mean, I say that to some of my students, like, I mean, let's say you're someone who just really, really, uh, you know, you kind of want to play like Steve Ray Vaughan, note for note, you know, that's that's what you wake up really inspired to do. I mean, we've all gone through that with different players. Uh, I think that's a necessary skill. Uh, you have to copy people, right? You have to say, I really like that person's sound and feel and their their kind of the kind of phrases they play. You have to copy that note for note, and then eventually that becomes just one piece of your own style, and you're going to eventually put all those different pieces together in your own way. But sometimes, I mean, I, I remember watching a video of myself from some gig I did when I was 18, 19. And every tune I was going into the octaves, trying to play like Wes, playing a big L5, 
And I remember watching this video and, and, and this is one of the reasons I guess it's also good to, you know, watch and listen to recordings of yourself. You know, after watching this, I was like, man, I'm doing this on every single tune. Like, this is too much. I'm using this one kind of technique on every single tune and I'm not doing it as well as Wes. And, and, and what kind of, what am I doing here? I love Wes Montgomery, but like, I can't just do that on every tune. Like this isn't, this isn't really working. You need to do that on like one tune or a couple tunes, but you can't just do that. The West Montgomery template for a solo single notes, octaves, chords on every single tune. Like that's just the only way you have to approach soloing. So in that moment, it was sort of illustrative to actually see and being like, okay, enough. You need to add something else. But I, but that, I guess I think just thinking about like, what, what is the sort of real world application? Because if someone is only just copying Steve Ray Vaughan or Wes Montgomery note for note, I would just say to them, that's cool. And you're going to learn a lot from doing that. And that's valid. But what are you ultimately going to do with that? Where do you see that? How do you kind of fit that into the, I hate to use the term marketplace, but you have to think a little bit about that i think right like i mean you have to think like what what are some of the things that sort of sets you apart as a guitar player as a as a musician i think that's right i think that's worth thinking about you know and i think um i think all these things are really important because i think if they seem really straightforward, a lot of the advice that you've given, but they're all the things that people disregard or they don't think about. And it's really good to hear that these are fundamental things. Just thinking about how you want to sound, you know, what you're working on, how you're working on it. You know, what is yeah. your perception of yourself? If, if you're saying, like you said before, like, I can't do something, well, why not just practice it then? I, you know, I, instead of stressing out about it, but of course, right? Of course, that's the secret, but that's not something that's always going to come up for people as the first response. I, I, I see that a lot with students, and I don't know if some of it is human nature, uh, maybe to be scared of things that are harder or that don't, maybe you think don't come as naturally, but I've also seen both with my own kind of process over the years and, and with students I've worked with that sometimes someone comes in and is, you know, weak in a certain area. And by really focusing on that area, that becomes one of their ultimate strengths. And they might even like, let's say someone who really came in and you said, wow, you're, you really need to work on your rhythm and your time. But let's say they really do. And then they may, maybe they, maybe they become one of the world's most in-demand accompanists. And they become known as like a really killer rhythm guitar player. Oh, actually, that's another thing I would add to your question, Ian. As some students have kind of asked me, and I've said, I would say, don't forget to develop your accompanying and rhythm guitar skills. See, I see that a lot with my more blues-oriented students. They've clearly spent more time like learning lead phrases than they have actually thinking about how many different ways can I comp on a shuffle in A, playing a 12-bar blues in A? I see that with a number of my students, and I, I sometimes try and push them in that way. I say, you know, you just, you know, we were just playing, 
and you just played the same turnaround and the same voicings and the same rhythmic pattern for six choruses on a 12-bar blues shuffle in a row. And sometimes they didn't even realize that. Sometimes they don't even realize there are other things you can do. They're like, oh, well, isn't that how you play a shuffle? Isn't shuffle dun da dun da dun And you say, well, I'm going to turn you on to a little Walter record. And I want you to listen to what the guitar player, whether it was Jimmy Rogers or, you know, one of the Myers, the Lewis Myers. I want you to check out the kind of accompaniment they're playing. And they're actually playing very interesting kind of sophisticated stuff. Uh, so, like, don't. Yeah, just I, I feel like that's that's one of my ultimates for a lot of my students. Like, let me hear you play a shuffle and let me hear you comp. Because most most of the time, the soloing tends to be way more advanced than than the rhythm guitar playing and the accompanying. But I think it's it's just a question of what they've worked on more. And maybe no one's ever really encouraged them to. Yeah, hey. Here's all these. Here are some things you can add that are really gonna take your rhythm guitar playing to the next level. Maybe or it seems thought. basic to them, like maybe rhythm guitar. Well, that's just the rhythm guitar part. They don't. They take it for granted and don't see how deep it, it is. Right. Less glory in it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but yeah. it always shows in the in the single line. You, they're, they're the same they're the same actually That's you know true. you know you in two bars you can tell if someone's a good rhythm guitarist from their the way they play a melody so that's another truth we just revealed here on coffee talk there's a lot of truths today <laughs> i think well, i think before we tell all the truths of guitar we might have to wrap up this pot of coffee so cheryl bailey what's your thought as we're wrapping it up well, thanks for, you shared a couple of stories about Jim Hall that I didn't know that were great. But also, I love what you're saying. You know, you said this term networking, whatever. Yes, it's kind of a corporate term. But everything that we talked about today in terms of like how you even met Jim Hall or how we met or how you came to Berkeley was all about <laughs> connections and the hang, right? Just the hang. And that's that's how you, yeah. that's how it happens, right? <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, all you all are examples of people that are awesome, amazing, very inspiring musicians, but who are also really awesome, amazing, really good people. I mean, that would be the last thing I would say to any students watching this is like, be a good person. You know, like, I've recently made some changes in my own band in New York because I just thinking, man, nah, like that kind of attitude. I, I'm not comfortable with that anymore. I don't want to hear you, you know, talk, say nasty things about people behind their back if it's musicians that we all play with. You know, no, I have no time for that. Uh, just to be a good person, be a team player, be someone that like looks out for everyone else in the band. Because because the thing is, like, there's so many good musicians out there that wouldn't you all agree that if like you're trying to pick someone to either come teach at Berkeley or Pick, pick a musician you want to play with or collaborate with, let alone go on tour with for an extended period of time. You want to pick people that are really great musicians, yes, but also that are going to be good people that are going to really be like good people to be on your team, good people to work with, people that like 
I mean, I just finished this really fun tour in Europe and I was really struck by not only what great players everyone was, what nice, but, but also what nice people and what a team effort it felt like, like musically and otherwise, like people really looking out for one another on the road, like helping each other out, being supportive. And it, it just, it really, I mean, you all have toured and played all over the world. I mean, you know what it's like when you have a, you know, 10 hour drive and you got to get out of the car and go right to soundcheck and play. I mean, when you've been spending the day with people that you like, that are really nice, good people, I mean, it's just, I mean, and that really relates to hireability. When people are choosing people to hire, there's just so many good musicians. I mean, you would have to be, I think you would have to be the next Jaco Pistorius or Jimi Hendrix or Eddie Van Halen or Wes Montgomery for someone to be like, that person is a total jerk, is so difficult, but they are just so good and they're the only person on the planet that can play X or Y that I know they're going to be a total pain in the butt, but I'm going to hire them even though, because otherwise I think we would all rather, you know, do that 10 hour drive <laughs> with someone that's going to be a nice, cool person. So I think that is a really important, just being a nice, good person is really important. Yeah, you can't say that enough. That's another secret. Another secret revealed um, on contact. <laughs> really true. It's like the hidden truth, right? Um, Ian, what, are you, what about you? What's on your mind? Yeah, amen. That's, that's, that's the truth, right? Yeah, and also, like, I guess when I was a student, I was so insecure about my playing that I might be unaware of how I'm treating other people or how I'm coming off, right? That like worrying about your playing a little too much might make you seem a little antisocial, right? Mm. And that if you played with people and you're just like, oh man, I didn't like the way I played on that thing or like I didn't play this one passage very well or whatever and like puts you in a bad mood, you might not realize that you're kind of like bringing the vibe down, right? And that like, be cool with the rest of the band, even if, you know, you think you could have played that better. Like, that's just for you to go home and work on more, right? Like, still be a cool, good person, <laughs> even if it's like, you're just being, you know. Anyway, for sure. It, it's really true. I mean, sometimes we'll get to talk to alums or, you know, people come, Chris, like you did, they come in after having all these connections with Berkeley and people know who you are. And I always love to ask people who recommend someone, like, what is it? What do you remember about that person? And then sometimes ask the person, like, you know, what's your impression of what people might have remembered about you, who recommended you? And it's always different. It's the person who's recommending, it's always like that time that you were so great or that time you really listened or that time you said something that, you know, made me feel great or you saved my life one day because you came in and you played this thing or you, and then when you ask the person, what do you think people remembered about you at first they go to, Oh, I don't know, maybe it was that record or maybe it was, <laughs> you know, that thing I played at the gig and, and it like, we all have that self-consciousness where you're always like worrying about every single note that you chose <laughs> and provided you've done all the work provided you've done all the work that you mentioned before. 
it's always the other things that go into it. You know, it's almost like the given is that you're going to be a great player and be so distinctive and unique in yourself. But then among those people, it's how you treat everybody else, you know? So thanks for, thanks for stressing that point. I think it's important as we're all getting tired at the end of the semester to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> remember that. Everyone. <laughs> well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I've, I've been loving teaching at Berkeley and um, this has been a great first year and uh, this was, uh, this was fun. Thanks for having me on, uh, on Coffee Talk. Great. So we're going to keep hanging out, but we want to say um, thank you, Cheryl Bailey, for being here with everybody. And thanks, Ian. Thanks, Chris. Thank and if you're listening or watching, we'll be with you on the next Coffee Talk.